So as I mentioned, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 1, and this morning I, I wanted to take just this Sunday, because next Sunday we'll jump into the, the process of consecrating that, that whole journey of thinking through how are we preparing ourselves for the future that God wants to, to, what he wants to accomplish in us, and that'll be an important season. But I knew that in preparation for that, I really felt like the, this Sunday was important as we, as we kind of turn the page on our past and embrace our future, that there's something very important about the way we see ourselves as a church and ourselves as individual followers of Jesus that has to change in us in order for us to truly move forward. Consecrate will prepare us for what God wants us to do, but there's a mindset that has to accompany that that changes the way we perceive ourselves and especially our church family. So if you're new this morning, uh, I'll make some references that there's some history in our church that, that has kind of come to bear in a lot of the way that we see ourselves, that God is kind of rinsing out to help us to become who he wants us to be in the future. And so this morning I want to talk about the, this concept of really moving beyond survival. Which, which really, so many times in our life, you and I, when difficult times come, when challenges happen, when failure occurs, we kind of think, if I can just hang on, I can just survive, I can just get through this season, then somehow I'll be okay. That's never God's intent for us. God doesn't just say, hey, just survive it, and then we'll all, I'll start working in your life again when you survive the storm that you're going through, when we, you survive the failure you're experiencing. That's never the way God intended th- things to happen in our lives. But we, we, we buy into that mindset as individuals, and we buy into that mindset as a church sometimes. And we allow those things to really just say, uh, survival is the only option we have right now when God never intended for us just to survive. He actually intended us for, uh, for us to thrive in the middle of challenges, in the middle of defeats, in the middle of, of, of failures, in the middle of barriers. All those things, God is wanting us to move beyond that. And so this morning, I want us to look in, into the first chapter of Philippians because Paul, who writes this book, is the perfect example of what it looks like when you shift gears from this mindset of, okay, I'm a victim of my own life, I'm a victim of my failure, I'm a victim of the failures of others, and you shift to realize, I'm not a victim because Jesus has taken care of all that stuff on the cross That now I actually can thrive in the middle of difficult situations. And Paul is the perfect example of that. Paul experienced a lot of trials. In fact, if you and I were to read through the book of Acts and then look at Paul's resume of suffering and then compare it to ours, there's very few people here who could say, yeah, I've suffered more than Paul. But the theme that runs throughout the book of Philippians is this theme called joy. Or Paul went through such struggles and such, such um, challenges, yet he still had this underwriting joy about what he was doing because he realized God was still at work in his life no matter what would happen. And if you and I can make this shift, we can make this turn, you and I will begin to see how much more God is at work in our life than we'll even realize. It's, it's the mindset that has to shift. Like, for example, I watched a, a documentary on rescue swimmers with like with the navy and with the coast guard and the training that they go through which is absolutely insane um they have a really high attrition rate when they go through their school most of them don't even graduate because they're so elite but but one of the things that the difference between someone who is in the ocean and struggling to survive and may drown and the swimmer that's dropped out of a helicopter to save them it begins with the mindset and so, so when you say you're out at sea and, and you get thrown overboard and you're in 40-foot seas and the wind's blowing and you think you're going to die, so you're grabbing for anything that you can, you know, any floating wreckage or, or a life preserver, something so you can just do what? Survive. You can just make it through this. When the helicopter from the Coast Guard shows up and then the swimmer drops into the water, his mindset or her mindset is completely different than yours. They're not worried about, am I going to survive? Their focus is, 
am I going to be able to save the person that's about to drown? Where you and I would just say, okay, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to go with the seas. I'm going to float over the 40-foot waves. I'm just going to see if I can hang on. That swimmer, when they drop into the water, you know what they're going to do? The first thing they're going to do, they're going to start swimming. And if you've ever seen it, it's crazy. You can actually see a, a Coast Guard swimmer can swim in 40-foot seas. It's unbelievable because their mindset is, I am not a victim of the waves. I am here to save somebody's life. And if you and I, especially as a church, can make this shift to say that, yeah, there is broken things in my life, there are wounds from the past, there are challenges that I face, but because of what Jesus has done for me, even though I'm in the process of being healed, I am also in the process of what God is working out in our city and our world to help other people experience salvation like I have. God is calling us to flip that switch, to change from what we used to be to what he wants us to become. And that's why I have us in this passage this morning where, where we learn from Paul's example about what he went through and how he still saw God's purpose accomplished through him, even through a difficult season in his life and in his ministry. So let me read, starting in verse 12 of, of uh, Philippians 1, and I'll read down to verse 18. So Paul says this, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's literally writing these words from prison. He's been thrown into jail because he's following Jesus. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I was put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So capture the context, the, the scene for Paul's life. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's sharing the incredible truth about who Jesus is and how Jesus can reconcile people back to God through what he's, his death and his resurrection. He's telling people about that, and the result is he doesn't get a trophy. He doesn't get a little star on the chart. He gets thrown into prison. And so if you think about that for a moment, our initial response to something like that would think, oh, no, that can't be part of the plan. God's supposed to just like pave the way and part the seas and Paul's supposed to have free reign and going wherever he wants to to tell people about Jesus. But now he's in prison. But how does Paul respond to that? How does he respond to this point of challenge or barrier that's in front of him? That's what I want to look at today is how you and I need to change our understanding because surviving turns to thriving when we understand. I want to walk through a number of things in the passage. The first thing is this, when we understand that God knows better than I do. So Paul says this in verse 12. He says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty confident that if we kind of rewind the clock of Paul's life, and we go back to the moment where he met Jesus, and, and Jesus is calling him to follow him, and so Paul's turning his life over to Jesus, that as, that as he's kind of thinking down ahead of time of what his life's going to look like, and what it looks like for him to share the gospel with other people, I'm pretty sure that prison wasn't necessarily part of the equation. That Paul maybe had a plan of how it was going to unfold, but being thrown in jail for, for what he was doing maybe wasn't even part of that. that. In fact, if, Paul would have, if God would have said, hey, Paul, why don't you give me your, your will for your life, what it's supposed to look like, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't look like what's laying, un, unfolding for Paul right here. Which means God knows more than Paul does. 
Paul's plan would look different. Kind of like you and I. If you and I were to, God were to come to us and say, hey, what, what do you want your life to look like? I'm sure all of us could give him a very detailed uh, kind of description saying, this is what my life's supposed to be about. And then God would come along and say, let me compare it to my script for you. Guarantee pretty much they wouldn't match up. And that says something about the way God works. God works differently than the way you and I want him to. We have a script that he doesn't follow. He doesn't follow our script. He's already got one for our life that it's far bigger than what we understand. And Paul understood that, that God was, was sovereign is the word that we use. He understood more than Paul did. Therefore, he was going to use his chains and his imprisonment to advance God's purpose through him. And the same is true for you and I. We have to understand that if we're going to be able to switch our mentality that God knows more than we do. God's plan is greater than our plan. God's understanding is beyond our understanding. That's why when bad things happen, it doesn't mean that God is somehow not in control. But we, we come up with this perception that when life is good, God is good. When life is bad, God is bad, and he doesn't deserve to be God anymore. But if you read through the, the scriptures, that's never the case. In fact, it's right in the midst of suffering and pain and loss and failure that God is at work, that God is doing what he wants to do through somebody's life. He's actually using what they're going through, which means he's smarter than we are. And I don't know what you've gone through or what you're even experiencing now, but I know that God is bigger than what you're walking through and God is wiser than what you can perceive about how you should handle something. It's throughout Scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament, Joseph's a perfect example When Joseph opened his mouth, originally God gives Joseph a dream that demonstrates to him that someday he's actually going to rule over his brothers. And when Joseph opens his mouth to share this dream with his brothers, I'm pretty sure he didn't think, okay, this is the way it's going to unfold. They're going to hate me. They're going to sell me into slavery. And then when I get sold into slavery, I'm going to be a good guy and a righteous guy. I'm going to oversee a guy's house as a slave. And I'm going to make sure that his household runs great. And then I'm going to be falsely accused of rape by his wife. I'm going to get thrown in prison. And when I'm in prison, I'm going to help other people. And when they get out, they're going to forget about me and I'm going to rot in prison. I don't think that was Joseph's plan. Anybody think that's true? I, I don't think he had that in mind. That's exactly what happened to Joseph. But if you read through that parts of Gen- those parts of Genesis, you never ever see that moment where Joseph's just sitting there going, oh, it happened to me again. Another bad day. Woe's me, God. Where did you go? You've left me. You've forsaken me. You don't see that because what happens in the end when you get to Genesis chapter 50 is that Joseph becomes not only second in command in Egypt, but functionally becomes the most powerful man in the entire world at that time. Because Pharaoh gives him that much authority through God working out circumstances. And actually says in Genesis 50, what man intended for evil, God worked for good and the saving of many lives. And what he was referring to is because of his power and authority now, he was allowed to bring his family, which was the nation of Israel, into Egypt and save them from the famine. Now, there's no way Joseph's going to script that for his life. There's no way that Paul's going to script this for his life. And that means for you and I, stop trying to fulfill what you think God's will is for your life and realize that God works out his purpose in the midst of everything that we go through. Every trial, every circumstance, every failure, every barrier, God is at work. And that means in a church that has a history like ours, at every single moment of failure in our church's history, guess who's at work? God is. God didn't check out on our church because we failed or because a leader failed. God was always accomplishing his purpose, even though we failed. How many know that's true? Because if failure meant God stopped working, he would have stopped with Adam and Eve, right? But he never did. He keeps working. And that's why we have this beautiful thing called the cross. The ultimate outcome of God's love for people is I will deal with their brokenness and their sin once and for all through my son's death on the cross. 
and then his resurrection, which demonstrates his power over death. Second thing, second thing to learn about and understand about surviving and turning to thriving is that you and I have to learn that trials come with the territory. One of the great tragedies of the church or Christianity is when somebody comes along to you and says, hey, if you give your life to Jesus, all your problems will disappear. That's not an evangelist. That's a salesperson. And they're trying to sell you something. Paul says in verse 13, he says, I am in chains for Christ. Because of Jesus, because me living out, following him, I'm in prison. Now that doesn't sell very well, right? What if I I gave some kind of invitation at the end of the service and said, any of those who want to choose to follow Jesus, the correctional officer will meet you at the back of the room and he will take you to prison. I don't think we'd have any takers on that one. But Paul's saying, because of what Jesus has done, because I've chosen to follow him, I've ended up in prison. That's part of the territory. That's part of what it is to follow Jesus, is that I am going to experience difficulties and challenges in life, and things are going to happen to me. And that's hard because we don't want that. But you and I also understand we, we live in a world that, in a sense, we are, we are counterclockwise. We are counterintuitive. We are going against the flow. We're not following the course of culture. And because of that, you and I will run into things that are difficult for us. And that means there will be suffering, there will be difficulties, there will be challenges in following Jesus. But God uses those things to shape who we are to accomplish his purpose. See, we think that God works in the absence of failure. No, God works in the presence of failure all the time. He works in the presence of things that happen to us, difficulties that we experience, things that that impact our lives that are negative. God uses those in order to accomplish his purpose. I'm a huge basketball fan. Those of you who know me know that's true. And, and one of the things that, that is interesting about basketball is that when it was first begun, it was a non-contact sport. Anybody watched basketball, especially the NBA version lately? Anybody see any contact? You know, about half the players in the NBA now, they have mouth guards just like professional football players wear. Why? Because there's just a little bit of contact in the game of basketball today. But one of the things that you'll notice about the elite players is that they know that they're going to encounter contact, especially if a really good player like Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or whoever it is, they're, they're going to take the basketball to the hole, which means they're going to drive towards the basketball. They're going to try to make a layup instead of shooting outside shot. They know that nine times out of ten, they're going to have to absorb contact. That's part of the game. But they have this capacity to absorb the contact and somehow remain in a, in, a, in a place, either, even in midair, to be able to keep the bounce, to be able to put the basketball in the hoop. It's amazing. But they know that the, it's coming. They anticipate the contact. I remember when Jordan was, was younger, and it's like his first year playing basketball, and I remember times when Jordan would take the ball to the basket and try to score, and he'd get hit. I remember at first he looked at me like, Dad, they're not supposed to be doing this. Non-contact sport, Right. But he had to learn over time that that's part of the game. And that when you play and you play hard, you're going to have to absorb the impact of other players in order to be successful. The same thing is true in following Jesus. There are times when you're gonna, you and I are going to have to absorb the impact of what it means to follow Jesus. That as we push forward in what God is wanting to do, as we pray about and maybe give and even go to reach unreached people, guess what? It comes with the territory that you and I are going to have to absorb the impact of the world. That's part of what you and I have to realize. That means that even in our church, even though we move to Runway from Shasta, even though we change our name from New Hope to Antioch Church, even though all these things change, guess what's still going to be present? The impact of life on us. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could just change your address and all your problems would disappear? We've tried, some of us have tried that. They follow you. And we still live in the same world of brokenness around us, and we have to be willing to understand that. Third thing, surviving also turns to thriving when we understand that my trials can actually inspire someone else's purpose. This is really important. You and I have to understand that our life is not just about us. And so many times, we just get so self-focused and self-absorbed that we don't realize the way that I live out my faith, the way that I choose to follow Jesus, has a positive or a negative impact on other people. Paul says this in verse 14. He says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul realizes because of his courage and willingness to be arrested for following Jesus, that that has actually inspired other people to be confident. They're thinking, if Paul can go through this, if Paul's in prison, then I can be just as bold and I can seek to follow Jesus and I can seek to make sure other people know about him. Paul's inspired them. But you and I have to think about that, that my life and the way that I follow Jesus and the way that I even understand church and the way that I embrace what God's doing in the church has a direct impact on the influence in other people's lives. You and I just don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a world all by ourselves. We live around people who watch and observe and then make decisions based on what they see in our lives. And this is where it's so important for you and I to, to make this shift from being the victim of our own lives, our own sin, our own circumstances, of the church that we go to, of the city that we live in, or whatever it might be, the circumstances we find ourselves in. We can't continue to be the victim. We have to switch and realize that there are people around me that are being influenced by the way I handle things. Therefore, I can't continue to play the victim. See, there's, there's something that, there's, there has to be this moment that God infuses you and I by his spirit with this thing called courage to live beyond the victimization that we buy into. For, here's a perfect example. 9-11, when that happened to our country, there was a wide range of responses to what occurred on that day. There were cowards and there were heroes. And one of those heroes we know, his name's Todd Beamer. And Todd was on flight 93 that we're not quite sure where that was headed. Some say it was headed to the White House. But what happened on that plane, there's a group of Americans who lost their lives that day, that there are a whole lot more Americans that owe their lives to them because as they began to hear what was happening in our country and how planes were being used as weapons, they realized that their plane that had been hijacked was probably on the same course. Now they had a decision to make. Well, Terrorists took over the plane. They killed the pilots. Now they're in control. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to, I'm going to be in sorrow and weeping over the last 15 minutes of my life because woe's me, I'm about to die. I'm going to call my loved ones and in tears, I'm going to say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to die and I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to allow this to unfold and I'm going to allow this to happen. Or you realize that you aren't a victim, that you have the, the power and the courage to actually do something to make a difference just like Todd Beamer. Remember his story? Remember he's on his phone, the phone with his wife? And just as he finishes the conversation and she hears the phone being hung up, the last word she hears out of his mouth is, let's roll. What was he saying? He was saying to the other group of people they had pulled together on that plane, this plane's not going to reach its ultimate destination. We are not going to allow that work to, gonna ha- to happen. We're going to take this plane back and avoid further tragedy. 
See, in a moment, there has to be that decision for you and I. When we follow Jesus, I am no longer going to be the victim. Why? I don't have to be. Because Jesus' death on the cross means I'm no longer a victim of my own sin. I've been set free from that. I can confess that. I can turn from that. And I can be right and pure before God because what Jesus did for me. And therefore, I don't have to be the victim anymore. I don't have to wallow in my brokenness and my sin and my failure and say, woe is me, I just ever, can't ever change. Yes, you can through the power of God's Spirit in you because what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I know in the story, we aren't heroes. You know who the hero is? Jesus is the hero. But it's through his influence in our lives that we realize that we can live beyond ourselves. Just a side note, this, this goes through my mind all the time. Parents, if you're here and you have kids, Who's the primary discipler in the life of your child? It's you. It's not me. It's not what happens in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It's you. Because you are the one that is with them all the time. You are the one that they watch 24-7. You are the one that they learn from how to process through failure and struggle and pain and difficult times. How do you respond to that? If you continually live in the mentality that I'm a victim and all this always happens to me and I'm doomed and I'm cursed and I can't get everybody on it, guess what your child will become? The same as you. Parents, you know as your kids get older, you start seeing things show up in their lives. Anyone know that's true? There's things that I see in Courtney and Jordan's life. I'm like, oh man, that's the one I didn't want you to have. Right? Anybody want to admit that's true? But then there's some other good ones. You're like, oh, thank God they got that one, right? They see everything. That's why you and I have to realize I can influence by my response to what happens in my life. I can either choose to inspire my child to not be the victim or I can allow them to be enabled to be the victim in life. Paul had this great example that was inspiring other people around him to help him, help them to see that God was still at work. God was still fulfilling his purpose. The fourth thing that you and I have to understand also is that God's purpose is bigger than me. Now, you and I have to just pause for a moment and think about something, that God is actually at work in other people's lives. I know for some of us, that's hard to see because all we want is God to work in our life. I don't care about my neighbor. I just want him to do something in my life. God's purpose is bigger than just me. What Paul says in verse 15 is he's talking about that people outside of him are actually preaching the gospel, that God's purpose, even though he's in prison and he's sidelined, which he's not, and he knows he's not, God is still at work through other people because God's purpose is bigger than one person. God's purpose is bigger than Paul. God was in, in, in the process of trying to reconcile people back to him through Jesus, and it wasn't just all coming down to one person. It was a collective effort of people who are called the body of Christ, called the church. And so because of that, you and I have to see that God's purpose is bigger than me. And when you and I live in the role of victim, all we can see is what God is or isn't doing in our life, let alone what he's trying to accomplish in the lives of people around us. We don't see that. We, we lose sight of that. See, Paul, Paul was preaching whether he was in prison or out prison, but there was a bunch of other people who were doing the same thing. They were doing what God had called them to do. They were fulfilling that. Why? Because they understood that God's purpose was bigger than just one person. God's purpose doesn't rise and fall on one human being. It doesn't. God's chosen to use humanity. He's chosen to use the church to accomplish his mission in the world. And that's all of us. And if you and I will just think about it for a moment, it isn't about me. When I, when I participate in church, when I am the church, it's not all about me. When I come in on a Sunday morning, 
it's not all about me. That there are lots of other people around you in this room that God is at work at in their life, either great victories or maybe through their defeats, that if we open our eyes, we see, wow, God is accomplishing his purpose through all of us. But sometimes we walk in and this is all we do. Just me today. Just God, I need this from you. I don't see anything else around me. Just me and you. Just me and you. And God says, wait a second, pull the blinders off. If you and I would understand that, it doesn't come down to God's purpose is bigger. God's church is bigger. Aren't you glad? I mean, I think about my own self. I think about God's purpose is bigger than me as the pastor. I am so relieved for that purpose that's bigger than me, that our church doesn't rise and fall on me. It rises and falls on Jesus, and it only rises on him. That means that I don't have to carry the weight of the church. I learned that probably 15 years ago. Hard lesson, but I don't have to carry the, I don't have to carry the weight of this church. Jesus does. He's the Lord of the church. And because of that, he's accomplishing his purpose through all of us, not just one person. And that's good news for you and I, but that's something we have to be reminded of constantly. And then the fifth thing, surviving turns to thriving when we also understand that I am not in this alone. Which means, as Paul says in verse 16, he says, the latter do so, he's talking about who's, who's out there pro- proclaiming the gospel, gospel. The latter do, is done so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So he says, there's a bunch of people who have a motivation of love, who are accomplishing this purpose, so I, even though I feel alone because I'm in prison, I'm isolated, I am never alone in what God is doing through me and through the lives of people. You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody ever felt alone at one or, tw- one or two times in your life? All of us do. And it's usually in those moments of failure or struggle or challenge or pain. And one of it is because it's a perception, even though it's not reality. And the other is that you and I have a tendency, when we go through difficulties, you know what we do? We extract ourselves from people. I don't know how many conversations I have with people. When you go through something, I just need to take a break. Now, usually that means I'm serving and I need to take a break. But really what that means is I'm going to take a break from church. And they pull back, and they pull back from relationship, and they say, ah, we just need to really focus in on these issues that we're dealing with. We just can't be involved with all those things, which is the last thing that you want to do. Realizing that you are not in this alone, but you think that you are, so you become isolated. And 99% of the time, when you and I extract from the church and from relationship to deal with our issues, we never re-engage, and we get lost. Because God has intentionally said, you are in this together collectively. You are never alone in the purpose and mission I have in your life and what the church is up to. You are in this together. That means it is so important for us to be in a relationship. And that's why we've talked about it's so essential for every person who is a part of this church family is in a community group, is in relationship, is growing and developing and being challenged and being encouraged and serving in an aspect of mission in our community as we do this together. I, I'm, I, I feel bad for someone who comes to me and says, I'm going through this, and one of the first questions I'll ask them, are you in a community group? And they say, no. Step one, get in a community group. Does that mean community groups will solve all your problems? No, there is no secret pill, okay? But that's the first step to realize when I'm dealing through stuff, going through stuff, my community group needs to know what I'm going through as we walk through this together, not in isolation. And as well, that's a reminder to you and I that we should always rely on, the, on others to accomplish what God wants to do. We can't go out and save the world. God saves the world and he uses all of us together. But that means that there are times when you and I want to try to do things on our own because of pride or because of whatever reason we come up with, we're just going to do it on our own and that sets itself for failure as well. Just like in our city, 
There isn't one church that's going to reach Simi Valley. There is one church. It's called the Body of Christ. It just happens to have a number of different fellowships around town. But there isn't like, oh, thank God that that church is in town because now all the other churches have been slacking. That church is going to save everybody. No. It's the body of Christ. We all work together. But in our own pride, when we think, oh, since we changed our name to Antioch Church, we're going to save Simi Valley. No way. Are you kidding me? There's a few other churches that God wants to use that is his church, his body. But in our pride, we think, oh, I can do this. And then what do we find out? Well, no, maybe I can't. A few years ago, I was on the phone with my dad, and he was telling me how he had injured his leg. And he said he was working in the yard, and he had filled his, his yard waste trash can full, and it was really heavy. And so he went, he went to move it, and as he pulled it uh, and leaned it back, the, the weight was so uneven that it, it started to come back on him. He couldn't stop it, and it fell on top of him. And so he injured his leg. And my, my dad's not, not, a, not a young man anymore. He's turned 78 this year. And so when, when he did that, I, of course, you know, as the concerned son, I kind of let him have it. Like, Dad, listen, you're not young anymore. You need to make sure that you have help. And I, you could have called my brother-in-law who doesn't live too far from you. you know, and he's like, yeah, I know, I know. But I just didn't want to hassle. And I just, you know, anybody relate? You, know, you just want to get it done. Do it yourself. You know, maybe a little bit of your pride. I can handle this, right? So I'm really giving it to my dad. Probably, I don't know, three months later, I don't remember the time frame, Jordan and I were outside, and we were working in the yard, and we, in Oregon, literally, because it rains all year round, you can't wait to work in the yard until the, sun, until the rain goes away, otherwise you'll never work in the yard. So we're out there, and I think we were, like, collecting leaves, and, and wet leaves are really heavy, and so we were piling them into our yard waste can, and, and our, our grass, for some reason, is always wet, but our grass literally was like a swamp in the wintertime. You walk, and it's just like slop, 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 and it's just really bad. And so I had the trash can, I was pulling it around the front yard, and I was in the grass, and I was pulling really hard, and because of the weight, it was, the wheels were digging deep into the mud. But I just thought, oh, I can make this happen. And Jordan's standing out here like three or four feet away from me, and I'm pulling really hard, and in my mind, honestly, I'm thinking, I'm going to impress Jordan with how strong I am. And I'm pulling really hard, pulling really hard, and all of a sudden, because of the mud, the can loses traction, and my feet lose traction, and I fall back, and the trash can just lands right on top of me. It's probably about at least 150 pounds. It was really heavy. So I'm laying there, and, and like sprawled out, mud everywhere, and I looked up at Jordan, and at first, I saw a smirk on his face like he was laughing, because it had to be pretty humorous. And then I looked at him, and I'm like, this is not funny. I can't get this thing off of me. Can you help me? And so he comes over, wrestling this thing. Finally, we had to like turn it over and all the leaves just like piled out of it. We had to start all over and I stood up and I was just covered with mud from head to toe. Now we laugh about it now, but then as I'm like mad and I'm like throwing leaves back in and you know, just, and then it hits me. Didn't you just have this conversation with your dad about three months ago? And your son was standing four feet away, yet you were going to do it yourself, weren't you? I'm like, yeah, that was pretty stupid. And God graciously said, yeah, that was pretty stupid. All of us find ourselves in those moments where like, oh, I'm just going to make this happen. God says, no, you're not. You don't have the strength. We're in this together. You're not alone. Be reminded of that. There are other people around you. And if you are alone, find your way into relationship. Don't allow yourself to be isolated. Don't disengage. When you go through trials and struggles and failure and pain, that's when you should engage all the more. Don't extract yourself from those relationships. And then moving on, the, the sixth thing, there's two more that's true of survive, when surviving turns to thriving is that we have to understand that people will sometimes let us down. Now this is, this is Paul highlights this, this is really important because as we move forward in what God wants to do in our lives, as we embrace what that looks like for our church, 
That doesn't mean that somehow we become exempt from the challenges or the failures or the impact of other people in our lives. So listen to what Paul says in verse 17. He says, The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up, stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. In other words, there's a group of people who don't like me and are doing bad things to me, trying to make it difficult for me as I choose to follow Jesus and live out his purpose and his mission. Sadly, this is true for all of us. There are people that will do things that will harm us. There are people that will do things that will offend us. There are, there are people that will do things that may try to sidetrack us from focusing on Jesus. But the question is, how do you and I process that? How do we respond to that? Do we automatically just fall apart because something bad has happened to us or somebody has done something to us and now my life is over and, and nothing, God can never do anything good again? No, what is Paul saying? He pretty much says at the end of the passage, it doesn't really matter, false motives, right motives, Christ is still preached. God's still fulfilling his mission. I'm not going to waste my time being offended by this person who hurt me. I'm going to deal with that, but I'm going to move beyond that. I'm not going to be defined by that. And some, sometimes we just get stuck in that, in the disappointment of other people, and we allow that to be a handicap in our life. Well, if this person wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't be in this place. But you know what? God works differently because when God knows because there's failure and because people do wrong things, that God still works despite those. In fact, God uses those. That's what Paul talked about in Romans for good in our life according to his purpose. I have a sister who's divorced and remarried. And in our household, divorce didn't happen, not in the Amstutz household, but it happened to her because her first husband had an affair and cheated on her. And she worked hard for a year. They went through counseling, and she wanted the marriage to work, and eventually he just walked away from her. But I watched my sister go through this incredible process of maturing because most people would think, wow, man, you're, what, seven years married, just have your first baby, your husband cheats on you, he wants to divorce you, you try to work at it, and now you're a divorced single mom. Your life is over. No, she didn't see it that way. She realized that in the midst of that, God was trying to mature her about things in her life that weren't right. And the result was that I watched my sister really become an amazing woman who understood more of God's grace in her life. And now even to see her today married again and happy and processing through health and her relationship. And now she lives in Texas, and I'm still trying to forgive her for that. But she's doing amazing. She's doing amazing. Why? Because she realized that even though somebody did something that wronged her, that didn't disqualify her, and it didn't end her life, God was still at work. How many times do we miss that? In fact, it's the circumstances that actually God works out in the difficult times in our life that actually cause our life to turn out better than it was before. There's an amazing story. There's a a girl who was, I think she was 12 years old at the time. Her name's uh, Brittany Bergeron, and her parents decided to go and stay at at an RV park right next to a casino in Nevada so that they could leave their girls in the RV and go and gamble for as long as they wanted to. So for 12 hours a day, her parents, this is Brittany and then her sister who was younger, were living in the RV. Her mom and dad would go to the casino. They would gamble all along, and then both of them had a drug problem. And so one night when mom and dad were at the casino, there was a knock on the door, the RV door. And, and she, Brittany knew, she was taking care of her sister. She knew not to open the door. And this person was saying, hey, your mom's been injured in the casino, and they want you to come. And she said, no, I can't open the door. So the person went away. Five minutes later, a woman came knocked on the door, said the same thing. Your mom's been injured. You need to come. And they've asked us to come. And so she trustingly opened the door. And two people jumped into the RV and began stabbing both her sister and her. 
her sister died, and she sustained life-altering injuries. Her spinal cord was severed, and she could not feel from the waist down. She became bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Her sister died, and as a result, what they found out was because mom and dad had just made a bad drug deal and had sold bogus drugs to somebody, instead of coming after mom and dad, they found the girls and they went after them to kill them. Now, if anybody has a right to say, I am a victim, my life is over, I've lost my sister, my parents are incarcerated, I'm in a wheelchair, and now I'm in a foster home, that's a bad day. But what was Brittany's response? This amazing thing happened. After a four-year period, this foster family adopted her. And they did an interview when she was 18 years old. She's now, obviously she's in a wheelchair. And in the interview, the reporter asked her, aren't you angry? Aren't you bitter towards your mom and dad? Aren't you angry at the people that tried to kill you and they took the life of your sister? And this is what her response is. She says, am I angry at them? I'm not. She says, in a way, I'm saying thank you. Because you know it happened in a bad way, but it gave me a great life. It gave me a great family, a great home. It gave me everything. And now today she's actually competing in sports from a wheelchair. Because she realized even though I'm in a wheelchair, it's not going to impede what I want to do in my life. How does she have that mentality? Because she never saw herself as the victim. And she realized even though people do bad stuff to me, doesn't somehow disqualify me or sidetrack me from the life that I'm supposed to live. And for some of us, you and I have lived far too long in, oh man, these people did bad things to me and because of that I can't, I can't do it. It's like the, you remember the, the man, the paralytic that Jesus came on who was by the, 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 the pool that was supposed to have healing, healing powers in it and, and he had been there for 37 years and Jesus asked this really strange question, do you want to be healed? Like, duh, a guy who can't walk. Why did Jesus ask that? And what is his response? He didn't say yes or no. He said, well, every time the water gets stirred and someone's going to get healed, no one's here to help me in the water. What is he saying? I'm the victim. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to be the victim anymore. I think he says the same thing to you and I. You and I can no longer be defined by our failure or defined by what somebody else has done to us because the cross has corrected that in our life. If you and I will live that out, we don't have to play that role any longer. And then finally... The final thing that's true about this understanding of, of, of uh, surviving, moving to thriving is that God's purpose must surpass my pain. Now, some of these points are like, really? Yeah, this is hard. But, but what does Paul say in verse 18? He says, but what does it matter? He says the important, he says, what does it matter that I'm in prison? What does it matter that I'm in chains for following Jesus? He said, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, even though I am suffering, even though I'm going through difficulty, even though I'm going through pain, it doesn't matter why, because God is ultimately accomplishing his purpose through my life. God's purpose is greater than my personal pain. That's hard to embrace. But that's the way God works. God is working in the midst of our pain. God isn't going to somehow forget what his mission and purpose is because you and I go through difficult times. He's going to actually work through that and he's going to continue to move in that in our lives. But you and I have to change the way we think that my pain is going to be part of the territory that I have to experience in following Jesus. But the beauty is because of the cross, that pain is not eternal. And because of the resurrection, life will happen forever without sorrow, pain, suffering, loss, sin, all that goes away in eternity. So if I can endure 
the pain of following Jesus in this lifetime, which will be a blip on the scope of eternity, I will experience forever the absence of that in my life. But you and I have to be willing to shift the way we see our lives. And this is what I want to close with, and then I'm going to pray for us before we conclude. Is all of us at one time or another, some of us more than others, we've experienced what it is to have a wound in our physical body. So maybe you cut yourself when you were making food or you were injured and you had to get stitches or something and you had some kind of a wound or a cut. So if you went to the hospital and it was obviously deep enough or big enough, you had to have uh, stitches. And if it was bigger than that, you had to have surgery. So there was this recovery process. But, but you started out with a wound and a wound is painful and a wound has to be dealt with. But then over time, as you start to heal, you start to mend then in any wound, the, the blood kind of cauterizes, and then you get this thing called a scab. And a scab is just God's way of covering over an injured area and giving it room to heal. And as it begins to heal, eventually, when it reaches a certain pro- point in the process of healing, that scab falls off. And then you have what's beginning to be developed as a scar. That's the normal physical healing process that God has wired us to kind of live out in our lives. But did you know that spiritually it's the same way? And emotionally it's the same process. You and I experience a wound either at our own hands or the hands of somebody else. And the process of healing has to begin. But the challenge that you and I face with a wound is you and I have to let it heal. If you keep picking at a wound, it will stay open. It will be painful. And the result will be worse than the original injury because it will become infected. And when it becomes infected, it will spread far beyond the wound itself. But if you and I allow the wound to begin to heal, then what happens is once it transitions from scar, from scab to scar, this is what's amazing. In fact, you could probably do it right now. All of us have physical scars from one event or another in our life. And over time, what happens when the healing process is complete, the scar doesn't go away. It's still there. I still can feel the bottom of my chin from when I got hit playing basketball and the nine stitches there. It's still there. But every time I touch it, you know what's not there? Pain. And so all the scar under my chin is, is a reminder of an event that happened that no longer causes pain in my life. And one of the things I'm convinced that God wants for our church is for us to move beyond being identified with the wounds of our past, both corporately as a church and individually as followers of Jesus, to allow his healing process to bring about this amazing transition, which brings us to a place of the spiritual and emotional scars that are reminders of what God's grace accomplished in the healing process of our life. Because they no longer come to bear in our life today. They no longer cause pain. They're still there, but when you and I see them, they're just a reminder of God's healing power in our lives. But for some of us, we are living with open wounds, and we continue to fester with those wounds, and we continue to be identified by those, and we won't allow God's grace through the cross to truly penetrate and bring healing, and we just keep living in them. It could be our own sin, our own addiction. It could be our offense towards other people, but we just keep living in it, and God's saying it's time to stop. It's time to allow the healing to occur so that someday you can look at that scar and you can point back and you can remember what the pain used to feel like but no longer has any impact on your life. If we can embrace that, I'm convinced that God will change our mentality so much so that we're not going to ever walk with this heaviness about our church history. We're never going to walk with this woundedness and this self-pity about our own journey in following Jesus because we're going to realize God never created me to be a victim. 
He's given me victory on the cross. Therefore, I am victorious as I choose to follow him. Doesn't mean I deny my brokenness or my woundedness or my failure or what people have done to me, but I have a way to deal with it. I have a way to find wholeness. I have a way to find healing. I have a, fi- a way to experience the fullness of God's grace so that scars are just a reminder of the pain that used to be a part of who I am but no longer comes to bear in my life. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to pray that God would begin that healing process for many of us so that as we embrace a new identity, we move locations, we come into a new season, that we're not just changing locations. God's transforming us in the way we see ourselves and the way we see how he works in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul's journey as a beautiful example of what you can do when we begin to see that you are always at work in our life, that you have intended for us to not just survive and get by and just hang on for dear life, but you've actually created us to thrive in the midst of challenges, in the midst of failure, even in the midst of what people have done to us. You've created us because of the cross to be new, to be victorious, to be people who truly see your grace work out healing in our lives. And so I pray right now, whatever points of pain that we have, whatever points of failure or barriers or challenges or offenses that we have, I pray, Lord, that right now that we would begin to see that what you have done on the cross, every single point of failure that we have committed, that others have committed towards us, you dealt with on the cross once and for all. You paid the price. You broke the power so that healing could occur, so that we could see ourselves not as the one who was drowning in the ocean, but we can see ourselves as you are healing us, as the rescue swimmer, as a part of your mission to reconcile reconcile people back to you. So Lord Jesus, I pray for your healing by your spirit to come into our hearts and our minds, that we begin to even see the wound that we may even have right now that's open and painful in our life, see it differently that you would begin to work out your grace and your healing in our lives so that each one of us will see someday where we have those scars that we can point to that no longer impact our lives. They don't hold us back. They don't define us. They don't limit us because we are whole, we are forgiven, we are healed, and we are on the mission that you've given us to fulfill your purpose in our lives, in our city, in our world. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.